Coming up on today's show. So I've got three daughters, and they absolutely love having the puppies around. I don't have to put out 3,000 silo socks to, to shoot nope. snogies. You'd need slugs to fend off the polar bears, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So dogs see, like, shades of white and black a lot better than we do and they see movement better and they see in lower light better. Broadcasting from the Mid-Migration Outfitter Studios, this is the Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast. How much direction are you getting from the governor? Minnesota DNR had reintroduced him into this area. I don't know, maybe you didn't want me to tell the story on the show, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I knew you were going to go there. I'm going to close the entire hunting season. Oh, really? The Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast is brought to you by Onyx. Know where you stand with Onyx. Today's show is brought to you by Haybale Heights on Devil's Lake. Visit haybaleheights.com for more. By Tazan Lake Lodge in northwest Saskatchewan. For trophy lake trout northern pike, go to tazanlake.com. And by Lake of the Woods Tourism. Plan your trip to Lake of the Woods at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. All right, welcome to the show. Don't forget to watch for the 25% off discount code for the new Sporting Journal radio store. It'll appear sometime here uh, down at the bottom of the screen throughout this show. Uh, I want to ask our guests today as we get into this if they've ever eaten crickets before uh, because we filmed at a cricket farm for Prairie Sportsman last week. And not only did I eat crickets... But I got my parents to eat some crickets, too, which I did not. I, my mom uh, doesn't put salt on her food. She's not a very adventurous eater. And I got her to eat a cricket. It was, uh, it was one of my one of the greatest moments in my life, I think. Uh, we also did some filming on the lake formerly known as Calhoun. It's uh, now uh, Bidet Makaska with Ray Ruiz from Baztec. Uh, let's just say there's a little bit of heartbreak on the show. You'll have to watch for it next season to see how we did fishing on uh, Bidet Makaska. Now, as we discussed last week here on this show, uh, we, we were talking about pheasant hunting. A good dog can make you at least look like a better hunter. They can always make you a better hunter, have uh, give you more success when you're out there in the field. And one of the best parts of of walking through grass with a with a young pup is seeing that light bulb go off as they figure things out as they get a little bit older. With my lab, Mika, getting ready for her 10th season, it was time to bring a new partner into the house. And uh, we're going to go through some tips for new pups, uh, getting your seasoned veteran ready for, for the fall hunting seasons, and uh, some safe ways to travel with your four-legged companions as well. Our guests today include Corey Loffler from the DRC Call Company. Corey, how are you doing? I'm doing very good. How are you? Not bad. Thanks for coming on the show. Also, yeah. uh, Tim Springer from Dynamic Retrievers. Tim, how's it going? Good. Hello. Uh, thanks. Going good. Thanks for being here. And also Andy Hawkinson from, uh, you're from Eden Prairie, Andy, is that right? Yep. Yep, and, that's correct. And you've got a 23-month-old yellow lab named Delta who earned her uh, master title earlier this year. Congratulations, and thanks for being on the show. Yep. Woo-hoo. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, uh, Corey, let's start with you. Your garage got a little squeakier here a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Three weeks ago, yeah, we had a litter of puppies in there. And uh, Red, who Tim is a little bit familiar with, um, she gave birth to 10 little yellow labs, and one of them being your new little yellow lab. So... <clears throat> I'm pretty excited about that. Oh, oh, right. oh look at that. There. Oh, puppy delivery. On. Our rating <laughs> ratings just went way up. Hey, uh, three actually. weeks old right now, so eyes are just starting to open up, and they're kind of getting a little bit mobile, cruising around. They had them outside a little bit in the grass. and uh, So I've got three daughters, and they absolutely love having the puppies around because it's just nonstop love all the time. And I think it's really good for uh, socialization and just getting the puppies started on the right track, just having all that human interaction with them all the time. And it's, uh, it's almost human overload, I think, for how much attention and time that they spend with the little, little critters. But uh, no, they, they turn out great when they're, you know, seven weeks old, ready for their new homes. They're absolutely just ready to love and learn and uh ready to trust humans and and that's good so we yeah. we're pretty proud of our our product when we're done with it when we're done with the the seven weeks just because uh how much time they've had spent with with people so do you, yeah, do you see that tim yeah that socialization is so important and you you never can go back and you know do it with if a dog is older and has not been socialized you really 
you really, that dog is never going to be as good as it could have been had it been properly socialized for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you only get one chance at those first six months of life. That's it. So uh, yeah, you the, do it the, right the, the first time. Yeah, the worst dogs we get in for training are people that said, I didn't want to ruin it, so I didn't do anything. And it just sat there and did not get socialized. Or And, and that dog's brain development is not as strong as one where people tried to train the puppy and did some stuff wrong. That's actually a better outcome than doing nothing. Mm-hmm. You bet. Are you doing like any introduction to like decoys or scent or wings, anything like that, Corey? Or what's your plan there once the puppy's a little older? Yeah, when they get a little bit older and a little bit more mobile, and they're just pretty wobbly on their feet right now. They're um, just starting to kind of learn how to walk on some decent ground and like the the fake grass carpet stuff. They can kind of walk around on that. So, um, but yeah, after that, then we'll start introducing them a little bit to some loud noises when they're feeding and banging some pots and pans together. And then um, some duck wings and pigeon wings stuff in the freezer that I have. Um, drag those around a little bit and kind of play play some fetch and um, sort of help encourage that retrieve drive a little bit with them and uh, kind of play some keep away and get them introduced to a lot of things. Usually we'll have a, have a chance to get them introduced to water before they go home too. Um, that's just kind of up in the air depending on water temperature and stuff, but usually we should be able to get their feet wet a little bit. Yeah, should be good in the summertime to get them in warm water, but definitely keep little dogs out of cold water for sure. Oh, yeah. Yep. Not a good deal to scare them away from too cold water right away. That'll right. put you way back. And I want to so, talk a little bit more about the training uh, coming up here in a little bit, but let's just jump back to to having a having a litter, Corey. What, you, you've done this a few times now, and 10 pups, that's a sizable uh, amount of puppies to have rolling around there. W- what's probably the hardest part of that process? Um, I mean, it all starts with the night of whelping and when she's actually having the litter, You want, or the, the day, whenever, she's, uh, whenever the female starts, you want to stay with her and um, kind of keep some supplies on hand so that you can make sure the puppies are coming out and she's not having any trouble. Um, about 50% of the puppies usually come out breech or feet first, and that's not ideal. Uh, it's just, it's what it is. It happens, and they struggle with those puppies more than the ones that come out head first. So you're going to want to be there just to assist with that stuff if any of the puppies do get held up in the birth, you know, birth canal um, and then kind of helping them, uh, you know, break their their individual little sacks open and get oxygen to their lungs right away once they're cut off from the, the mother's oxygen supply. So getting oxygen to those lungs and making sure the, the little puppies come out of there um, in, you know, breathing and hopefully alive. And then um, just kind of keeping an eye on mom, making sure she's doing good. There's a lot of stress. It's a, it's very taxing on the female to go through something like that, putting out 10 puppies on the ground. So uh, I can imagine. Yeah, you just want to be there. And yeah, absolutely. How long have you been there and then get them, you know, get them uh, latched on uh, right away because that colostrum, she's producing that colostrum. And uh, you want to get those puppies some of that, get them a little boost of energy right away. And um, yeah, she kind of takes care of most of the work, but you just want to oversee it. So the nights can get pretty long. I think this labor was started at 9 PM and ended at 5 AM. So Ooh. that was a good night for me. How, how many times did another puppy come out and you're like, geez, an, another one? <laughs> Is she done? <laughs> uh, there was a break between the, uh, 12 o'clock and one o'clock hour. She didn't have any puppies during then. So, but she, I could still feel some inside of her. So I knew there was more to come. And then, uh, yeah, she popped, a, a, I don't know, four more out after that. And so well, I'm pretty, yeah, it was pretty excited fun. about having a, a new mascot here for sporting journal radio. I know if you look at the, yeah. the logo, the, there's an outline of a, of a lab in the logo and that's Mika. So now I'm going to, ha- I'm going to have to build a new logo for this dog, I guess, Corey. And, <laughs> and, um, you know, we should, I want to talk about naming a dog because that's pretty important. And, you know, I, I, I thought maybe Corey, we'd have a contest, you know, so if people watching this or listening have some good dog names, we, we want to do a contest, maybe give away some uh, some gear and 
and uh, some different things for the winter. But talk about, and, and any of you guys can weigh in on this, but talk about how important it is to, to pick out, when you're picking out a dog's name when it comes to training and, and just everything that you have to deal with with that dog. Well, one of the biggest things I think is that the name does not sound like a common command you use. So like sit, that sound, you're going to say sit and the dog thinks you're saying its name and actually takes off instead of sitting. I've definitely called my dog something that sounds a lot like that, but it's yeah. <laughs> usually when she's doing something wrong. But yeah, yeah. yeah and back, I, back is another command too. You know, yeah, that we use in sending dogs on blind, Jack, you know, d- names like that, that sound similar. Definitely something you want to stay away from if possible. Yep. And then just keeping the name of the new dog different than any other dog you have in the household. That's one thing I've, I've found that's very important, you know, being in the, whether it's guiding or, you know, I've, uh, when your dog is around other dogs, it seems like, especially in the hunting world, you'll have a lot of, uh, a lot of the same names, you know, like they'll name them after shotguns or they'll name them, you know, after something in the hunting world. So I've been, I've been out in the field somewhere where there's six, seven, eight dogs and three of them have, this, <laughs> have the same name. So when Was someone, it Nelly? <laughs> Nelly's, <laughs> Nelly's been in there. Uh, uh, Remy. Yeah. Benelli. Remy. Remy. Uh. So I always, you know, try to encourage people to, to pick something that's simple and easy but doesn't sound like, you know, anybody else's, you know, some a little bit different. So you don't have uh, three of them in the field when you're out there hunting. Uh, Tim, when we talked a little bit about some of those important tips when you're training a dog, when you got a puppy like that, when somebody comes, you says, I got a brand, I got a brand new puppy. Uh, let's say seven weeks old, say they just got it seven weeks old. What are some of the other things you tell them to do when it, when it comes to getting that dog ready for the training process? Absolutely. Keep socializing that puppy, take it with you, expose it to, you know, of course, safe, you know, keep it safe and away from big dogs that might chomp it or something, but take it with you, socialize it, and then definitely start puppy training. I, I don't really consider it real training, but it really prepares that young dog to be really well trained later on. And what I mean is the brain development and allowing that puppy to learn how to learn you know, for treats and keeping it fun and lots of little short sessions. Um, I mean like a minute long, but numerous ones per day. And just having that dog be with you, those are the best dogs that we get into our training program or that I see amateur trainers uh, develop to the highest potential. I know Corey and Andy are really good about all that with their with their pups. Andy, what kind of tips did you have when you brought Delta home? Did you do anything like that? Uh, well, yeah, I think the biggest thing, um, Bill Hillman was a huge resource for me. Um, he has a really good puppy program, like up to six, seven months, I'd say. So the two biggest things that he, that he emphasizes is the command sit. So teaching your dog to be obedient and just to chase something, you know, just to go out, not necessarily bring it back to hand yet, but just to go out and just have that desire to go out and retrieve and have fun and just enjoy life, you know, until the real obedience starts, you know, with, uh, with the training through Tim's program or any other program out there. So those, those are probably some of the biggest tips that I have for folks too. And next thing you know, before she's two, she's got a master title. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I did a lot with Rue and similar to what Andy's talking about in the Bill Hillman program early on in the socialization stuff, but I would take Rue anywhere to the grocery store. I'd throw her right in the cart and um, I would bring a, a pocket full of dog food with me. And I mean, you bring a seven to nine week old puppy to the grocery store and about every person's going to come up to you wanting to pet the puppy. And I would have that pocket of dog food and I'd say, yeah, you can pet the puppy, but could you please give it three or four pieces of this food first? So now the, um, the, the situation now with this stranger coming up to pet the puppy, all of a sudden just turned positive because I got treats and then it's new people. So new people are awesome. And uh, I thought that was very beneficial. And if I had a half a cart full of food or something and ended up getting kicked out of the grocery store because I had a dog in there, I just leave. (laughs) Just leave. Okay, bye. (laughs) My dog had a had a very positive interaction with a young child at an early age where I think we were at uh, 
a softball tournament or something and they were serving hot dogs and I turned around for one moment and she, sna- <laughs> she, she got a hot dog out of that kid's hand. And ever, ever since she, when she sees a four year old walking around, she goes looking for hot dogs. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, she learned. So, uh, having that, Andy, having that, uh, master title at 23 months, I mean, that, that's not, that can't be all that common, right. To be able to have that success at, at that young age for a dog. Yeah, it's pretty rare. I think last time I checked last week, she was the ninth youngest uh, dog in the country that got awarded a master title out of 450 this year. So yeah, she's pretty special. I mean, if if I had to do it again, um, you know, I probably would have been a little bit more patient with her. Um, But yeah, it's definitely been a fun journey so far um, with her. And she's taken me some great places and met some new people. So yeah, it's been, it's been a blast. I think it's especially uh, cool that it's only Andy's, I think, second dog you've trained, right, Andy? Correct. So it's, yep. it's not like, you know, maybe a pro trainer that's trained thousands of dogs does that. It's not a big, as big of a deal as an amateur training their own dog by themselves and getting it accomplished that soon. So that gives, yep. that gives us all hope then. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Especially my first dog, definitely. Yeah. I mean, my first dog, I mean, even to this day, he still has a lot of holes. I mean, we've had a lot of success. I mean, he's six now, um, but to being able to start over with a brand new puppy, seven, eight weeks old, and just do it all over again the right way through all the networking I've made um, with my first dog, I mean, it's definitely paid dividends to, to progressing a dog a lot faster, and, and she's had a lot less holes and a lot, you know, a lot more capability than my older one does at his age now. So, yeah, it's been fun. And, Tim, that's kind of what your DIY program is is for right guys uh like andy or myself and uh, Corey that are going to be training dogs uh dogs at home and, and both these guys went through your program too right correct yep yeah the diy was an idea that hatched uh with me trying to help people train their own dogs and they would train their own dogs and come out like once a month and they'd be way off track we started using like cell phone video to see what they were doing every day and, and then I'm sending them little short video clips, not watching a two hour video on training a dog, but instead watching like a one minute video clip for what to do the next day or two or three. And then me getting the video back from them and then, uh, you know, tell them what they're doing right and wrong and then send the next video perhaps. Well, technology allows you to, you, you know, your, your program is also almost built for COVID, right? I mean, technology yeah. is allowing us to do so much nowadays, work from home, whatever. You're, I, I, you're kind of ahead of your time, Tim, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm not very technologically <laughs> advanced, but I did come up with, with something and it, it has been working out really good. We're, you know, we're improving it all the time. And I really, I really give a lot of credit to that person that wants to train their own dog because that was me once upon a time. And I just want to try to prevent some of the mistakes that I made with people and, and, uh, and help people train their own dogs. And, and you know, like family hunting dogs, it's so hard for people to let those dogs go to a trainer for three, four, six months, too, uh, not to mention the money. And also people want to learn how to do it themselves. Yeah, I'll tell you what, you know, uh, the, Mika was my first dog that I worked with. And, and it's funny, maybe... Andy, you can talk about this, but I know now getting ready for, for my next one, I, there's already a couple of things I know where I screwed up with her <laughs> that I want to yep. work on with a new pup. What were, what were some of the changes from your, uh, from your first dog to your second dog that you worked on? I think the biggest thing was just obedience. Um, I mean, a lot of times you go to a hunt test or even out hunting with, in the field with your dog. I mean, you see a lot of, a lot of dogs breaking, meaning they, they run as soon as the, the, the bird is shot or gunshot goes off. So uh, just being able to solidify the, those obedience commands. So whistle sits on blinds and just steadiness around uh, you as the handler and also being able to keep the dog quiet and still um, it just makes for a much more enjoyable hunt and uh, a lot makes your success opportunity a lot greater, even within the, the hunt test world too. So I think obedience is definitely the one thing that, that is a emphasis if you're going to start over with a brand new puppy for sure. Cause that, 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 that drive is going to be there with the dog. I mean, if you're getting a really well bred dog, more than likely you're going to have a dog that's going to want to go out and get the bird. So the ability is there. It's just a matter of just kind of toning it down and controlling it. I think that's a huge part of owning a good gun dog or a good hunt test running dog. Um, just building that 
super solid base right from a seven-week-old puppy and uh, starting with a good foundation and a, a good, well-behaved, obedient, steady dog because not only um, if your dog breaks at a hunt test, well, you're kicked out of the hunt test and uh, there goes your entry fee, but uh, from a safety point of things, a dog breaking in the field while hunting can be extremely dangerous. I've been around the hunting game a long time and I've heard some some horror stories that, that go along with dogs breaking and they don't end well. Um, so having a Having a good, obedient, steady dog can can really pay huge, huge dividends. And Corey, you and I were on a hunt together once, and that that's one thing with my dog. She breaks, and I finally got to the point after a couple of years of of not being a good enough trainer to, to break her of breaking, I finally started staking her in the field. And I, I remember hunting out of a pit with you one time, Corey, and uh, my my dog had had was able to jump. All right, I've got pictures <laughs> pictures of her on the cab of my pickup. I got numerous pictures on the kitchen counter where she knows she's not supposed to be. I've got her on, I've got pictures of her on the roof of houses. I don't know how she gets up there. Anyway, she could jump out of these pits. And I you remember the hunt I'm talking about, Corey? I, yep. Yeah. 100%. She, it was one of, it was one of the first times she'd hunt out of a pit. So I didn't even like, I had, I had no idea that she'd try to jump out of this thing. I figured, well, She's not going to break. She's down here in this pit. She found her way. She clawed her up and jumped out of that pit. And uh, I don't remember exactly what happened, but we had a low flyer and one of the guys shot it. And she was, she chased this goose for a while. And I think it went down the hill and maybe into the cattails or into some grass Mm -hmm. or something. And she came back covered in blood. And I think you said something first. I think you noticed it before I did. I, right when the shot went off, I, yeah, it was not a smart Right. Not a smart play uh, to shoot the, yeah, whatever, yeah. but was narrowly avoided. And then she came back so. covered in blood. Well, what had happened mm-hmm. is, is she, she got into it with that, with that goose was wounded. So she got the goose's blood all over her and uh, she was fine, but it definitely opened my eyes up to that situation. And it obviously can, can be very dangerous. So Tim, when, when you've got a dog that, um, you know, I guess when somebody says, I don't want my dog to break, where's, what's the first step for them? Well, the first step starts at about nine weeks of age of teaching that sit command for fun and focusing on a balanced training program from the beginning. So some of the older school methods that are still out there involve like getting the dog like super ramped up, like just insanely crazy to retrieve. And I think instead we want to, we want to have that desire, but we want it to be balanced out with obedience and be working on obedience and retrieving, having a strong retrieve desire, but not not that total crazy, just not so dog. We want to keep things kind of balanced, so to speak. And what are some of the other big challenges people go through when they're training a dog? Breaking, uh, like force fetching, or what are some, yeah. some of the other tough yeah. ones? Yeah, you know, my own my own weaknesses as a new trainer when I was first doing it and what I've seen in hundreds if not thousands of people's weakness is they want to they want to kind of glaze over that boring important stuff. Like like the really making the hold solid, and the fetch solid and sit and all the obedience solid and the collar conditioning they sort of kind of do it and then later on down the road they have holes in their program is what we call it which just means the the early work wasn't done thoroughly enough. And now there's issues we're having in the field that we can't correct because the dog doesn't understand the correction. What age would you introduce that collar to one of these dogs? I mean, ideally at around like three, four, whatever months of age, you're putting it on them just to go out for fun where the collar just means, Hey, we're going out to have fun. But, um, you know, Hillman, explains a little bit of using it very lightly with some younger dogs but we normally don't really start using it on a dog until six months of age or after you know it's funny some people we've all heard the arguments against those collars by people that haven't used them obviously uh but no matter how many times i may have used that on my dog throughout her 10 almost 10 years on this planet anytime i grab that collar that dog's tail goes ballistic she knows something right. fun is uh, is about to, is about to happen. 
Um, because yep. she's gotten it. She knows she associates with hunting, with hunting trips. And I wanted to bring up hunting trips, uh, Andy, because Corey told me that you've, you've been on a few of them. You've, you've done some hunting, yep. uh, around, where have you gone hunting? Uh, give us some, uh, some examples. Uh, I mean, myself personally, I mean, I've been all around Minnesota, North Dakota, uh, Saskatchewan a number of times, Manitoba, and then I've been dove hunting in Argentina before, which is, which is an awesome experience. Um, but with my dog, uh, we mainly stay in Minnesota, uh, for the Minnesota season up in Northern part. And then we go to Saskatchewan at least for at least once a year for the fall. And then in the spring snow goose time, uh, as well, depending on how the hatch is that year. So, um, last year we went, my dog, Benny and I, he's our older dog. Uh, we went to Northern Manitoba on the Hudson Bay to oh, cast cool. the goose lodge. Yep. Really? So you take a plane. Yeah. You take a plane from, uh, Winnipeg up to the lodge itself and you actually take Argos, um, out <laughs> on the tundra That's awesome. and, uh, shoot snow geese. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's an unbelievable experience. I've sure. heard I've heard about hunting snow geese up there before, and it's a little bit different mm-hmm. than you know, say yep. when you hunt them during the migration. They're just kind of up there, stayed basically staged up, right? Kind of trading around. Yep, yep, yeah. They're not in big numbers yet right. um, before they make their migration, so they're kind of just milling around, feeding on berries, that sort of thing. So you don't need a lot of lot of uh, decoys to really get them to come in, um, but you got to scout pretty hard um, just because you know there's not very a lot of them around at some points of the day. So what do you mean? That's a lot of fun. You're telling me I don't have to put out 3000 silo socks to, to shoot nope. snow geese, man. Nope. Just a, just a couple dozen. Yeah. That's all it takes. So no, but yeah, you need, you'd need slugs to fend off the polar bears though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Worth yep. it. Uh, yep. uh, how was the Argentina trip? I've gotten to go down there and do that, but we hunted ducks down there. And, mm-hmm. um, and then we also hunted Perdiz, which is where I'm going with this story. But uh, they finally had to talk me into doing the doves. Like, I, you know, I hunt doves up mm. here, which it's not the same as Argentina, obviously. But, it's, but I'm a duck hunter, man. I, I wanted to hunt ducks down there. So the doves were fun. I did, we did, like, at one point, I, I, I've told this story a million times, but I pulled up on one dove, and then another dove flew in front of it. So I switched and pulled up in front of that one. Then another one flew in front of that one. So yep. I switched. And finally, I, I looked at everybody else and said, I don't. I don't know which one to shoot at <laughs> yeah. blew through so many shells, but the highlight, uh, other than the ducks, the duck hunting was amazing. But the highlight I think for me was, uh, was hunting Perdiz down there and the pointers that they had down there were, were amazing. And it, it almost convinced me to get a, a pointer for pheasant hunting up here almost, but I'm going to stick, stick with my labs. Um, did you get to do anything other than doves down there? I mean, we obviously you know, drank a lot of wine and toured Buenos Aires and that sort of thing. But yeah, cool. the dove hunting is unbelievable. I mean, you, you become a really good shot by the time you're here. Cause I mean, you're shooting, you know, over a thousand in a few days for sure. So Man. yeah, I mean, I think at the end I was shooting about 70%. So yeah, wow. it's, it's a really good time. Definitely recommend it. And are you as disappointed as I am about not being able to get into Canada this year? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have a, we have a, uh, so goose hunt planned here for the first week of October in Saskatchewan. So it's not happening. It might be a miracle where, yeah, it's definitely not going to happen, but you know, unfortunately. It's, uh, really unfortunate. So, and then I want to go back to your, your trip, uh, because I want to talk about traveling to some of these places with yep. your dog, uh, because that can be kind of a challenge. Like, uh, the last few times I went up into Saskatchewan, I, I bought a little car for, for mileage and with, uh, uh, you know, silhouette decoys and sock decoys. I was able to get a whole decoy spread, my layout blind, my dog, everything I needed into into a little Toyota Camry to drive 14 hours to get up there. Uh, but I got my dog laying in the back seat. You know, so yep. I know that's not always uh, recommended. What kind of what kind of safety precautions or what when you when you're planning for a trip and we'll get everybody's opinions on this too. But Andy, we'll start with you. When you when you plan for a yep. trip like that, what do you think about when it comes to dog safety on the on the road? Uh, I think the first thing is just checking the local regulations of where you're going, uh, especially into Canada. You want to make sure um, that the food you're bringing in, you know, meets the local regulations of going into Canada. Uh, I haven't been stopped yet, but I mean, the chance is definitely there. Um, so making sure that, uh, that you're meeting the Canadian requirements is definitely of importance. Um, secondly, I mean, I always recommend, uh, taking frequent stops and hydrating. Um, people often forget how dehydrated the dogs get on a longer trip. I'd say over eight hours. Um, so making frequent stops and letting them get out, go to the bathroom, uh, giving them water is definitely important for sure. 
And um, when you do arrive at your destination, I mean, just give them a little bit of patience. I mean, their first day is they're probably not going to be, um, they're not going to probably be charging as hard as they normally would before you left for the trip because they are tired. Um, so just, just giving them kind of a day to relax if possible is definitely important too, to, to prevent injury and, and uh, get the most out of your dog on the trip. Corey, I think I've seen you have like a small fortress in the back of your pickup for your dogs. When you travel. <laughs> a couple of times. Yeah. I, um, I believe in a used gunner kennels. Um, they're the original double wall roto molded crate or, or kennel for a dog. And they've got the highest crash test rating. So I really value the kennels durability and the dog's safety inside of that kennel. So that's what, I like to use in traveling, put a nice orthopedic mat in there. And then I hang a water bucket um, about half full with, with some good clean water in there for the dog. And that seems to work really well. Just uh, keep a little air moving for the dogs. I always have it a lot cooler in the back wherever they are because um, they like some, some good fresh airflow. So I don't pack too much gear around the kennel and the vents of the kennel and stuff. But um, yeah, I just like to keep them comfortable and safe. Most of all, got a lot of time and a lot of effort and energy into these dogs. So I don't want anything to happen with uh, some dumb car accident or something. A lot and, of money too. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Tim, what, what part of your DIY program can you teach um, the dog to drive on some of those long road trips. So, so I can climb well, back into that orthopedic mat and take a little nap. Yeah. We're working on a, some breeding program with Corey of these uh, car driving dogs that we're trying to breed, but we haven't really got it mastered quite yet but working on it. we got a lot of wrecked cars, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So like the safety thing is a huge thing. I think not having a dog like running around loose, in the back of the truck or in the front, even if you do get an accident and that dog can get flung out of there. And there's some sad stories there, but really the way you travel with the dog should not be a new thing for the dog. You know what I mean? You should already have a system of, of going training or going somewhere and your dog's going with you. Your dog should already be accustomed to that procedure. You know, your routine I'm traveling with that dog. Um, and then I also would add about water, when, you're, when your water supply for that dog gets about halfway low, I would add to it so you don't just switch over to a different water source that can cause, like, uh, stomach problems and you have diarrhea on the road and it's a big old mess. So kind of switch that water over gradually and you'll have less problems like that. I got. Do you guys have any fun diarrhea stories? Because those always play well oh. on the radio. <laughs> My <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, you know, so, so you want to be a dog trainer, you know, picture goes around once in a while. It's like some, it's a, it's a crate, you know, that's just covered from head to toe in diarrhea, you know. The worst part, I think, is the smell. Like, I one time I came home, uh, it was, a, I was at a wedding, my buddy's wedding reception, and I came home and Mika was pretty young. And I was tired, like it was a late night, I was ready to go to sleep, I probably had one eye closed. And I, as soon as I opened the door to my house, like the smell punched me in the face and I had her in like one of those wire kennels. So it, and it was in the corner and thankfully I had hardwood floors, but, uh, the walls like halfway up the wall, everything. Yeah. And it was, Oof. so that was another, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of stories. I had a friend that was, they were redoing their hardwood floors and that happened and it all oh. got down in the cracks oh. and they had to take like a, like butter knife and get in there and like <laughs> scrape it all out. Gross. Yeah. Getting back to your DIY program, uh, Corey or Andy, either one of you guys, if somebody says, Hey, you guys went through this, you know, what, what should I expect uh, going through this program? Come on. You can start Corey. Go ahead. Oh, I, I would say um, the biggest thing, the, the, the most beneficial thing that I learned and the biggest questions that I had was all about the e-collar and everything e-collar. I think they're a very intimidating tool and can be uh, very detrimental or the absolute best training tool ever for a dog. But uh, to find the exact time and place and how and when to use that thing, Tim has opened my eyes to, uh, you know, a whole new light uh, of timing and uh, corrections and, and 
how big the corrections should be, when to give them. I mean, that was something I really, really struggled with early on. And I think a lot of people do. A lot of people are very intimidated with e-callers and that just, I mean, it, it, it cleared it up a lot. I still do have questions, but I think uh, I try to continuously learn uh, all the time. And I think that's a, a good part of being, you know, hopefully a successful dog trainer is just trying to learn all the time. And uh, yeah, I talk to Tim frequently and most questions revolve around the e-caller. So that's my two cents. Well, Tim, would you say the first thing somebody should do, uh, like what I did the first, when I first got that caller is uh, uh, me and a buddy had a couple of beers and then wrapped around our arms and gave ourselves a little tickle uh, just so we knew what we were working with more than anything. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, people, you know, call it a stimulation. I mean, it's definitely a shock. I mean, it, it hurts, you know. So, uh, yeah, I, I think one thing, the biggest thing, if you just want to sum it up quickly, is that we should all strive to never use an electronic collar on a dog in a manner a dog not understand. Often out of frustration, uh, electronic collars are used. The dog doesn't understand the correction and the collar is blamed when really it was the person's fault for not doing their, their important, boring, important stuff in the yard and their foundation work. Let's talk about nutrition. Um, Tim, you've probably seen what Corey feeds his dogs. What, uh, when you guys talk about, uh, because, because Corey, you actually break it down pretty well uh, a lot of people will just go to the store and see you know what the protein or fat content is on the side you actually you know you 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 incorporate a lot of different uh food into your feeding schedule uh for a new pup let's start with with a young pup what do you like to feed them and that could be any of you guys me sure oh you or tim uh, andy a good good quality puppy chow yeah, I would say a well-known brand. You know, lately there's been some problems with dog foods, and it's always like some kind of weird, you know, brand that people think they're they're doing better for their dog by buying this $100 rare food, and then it has some mold problem and kills dogs or have organ problems and things like that. I think the a high-quality food from one of the more well-known companies is probably your safest bet. So I have a food-related question. I don't know what we can do about this, but uh, Mika was great about waiting for the okay to go eat her food. You know, I'd pour pour food in her bowl and make her sit and wait, and she was great about that. But and now I can leave now I could leave the bag of food next to it, and she wouldn't get into it. But when she was a puppy, she 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 had no off switch. And uh, I remember one time we were. Uh, I was at this one camp I used to guide at a little bit and um, one of the other guides had his dog there and he had a 110 pound lab that was skin and bones, huge dog. And he would literally leave a five gallon pail full of the cheapest dog food you could find. And the dog would just kind of nibble at it. Just couldn't put on, it was huge dog, couldn't put on weight mm-hmm. and just barely ate. Well, Mika found that bowl, that uh, bucket of food one time and I think it was Uh-oh. in the, yeah, I think it was in the dark and, you know, kind of put the dogs to bed and it might've been, a, might've been a little bit of a late night and put, put the dogs to bed and I got up the next day and we were out, we were out in the boat scouting and I was with my buddy, Tony and, uh, I brought Mika along and all of a sudden she kind of jumped up on the bow of the boat, you know, and was looking around as we were rolling around and I looked at her and I looked at Tony, I'm like, does my dog look fat to you? <laughs> she was huge. It was like, it was like a, the Goodyear blimp sitting up on the front of the front of the boat. Uh, is there anything, is there any way to, to kind of keep, keep a dog from, from overeating like that? Well, you know, retrievers and labs especially are so, you know, oral in nature. I think eating, overeating and over drinking is kind of a common phenomenon with them. But I, I think you should not free feed your dog back to the traveling thing when you're on the road or you're hunting a lot. You want to give that dog a lot of food and have it eat if it's having, you know, if it's working hard. And free-fed dogs tend to, on trips, like not eat for like days on end and just nibble or not eat at all. Or like the example of that, the guy with the big lab that was free-fed uh, a cheap food. That's the worst case scenario, you know. If you just give them, if you feed them twice a day, they'll eat whatever you put in front of them. Then when you're on the road or you're hunting, you feed them and bam, they eat and they're getting the nutrition they need. 
they get into that routine. I really, I really like yeah. when my dogs value food. So we have scheduled feedings and I, and I really like that they value food because they hold that at a very high priority. And then I can use that against them. That's something that I have, they want, and I want them to behave in a certain way. So it's a give take relationship. Hey, if you want this food, then sit nice for me or um, go over here or go over there with a the hand signal, or whatever it is. Um, they value that very high. But if it was a bucket, five gallon bucket of food sitting over in the corner and I tried to bribe them and sit down or, or do a, an obedience thing, it's not going to work because they don't care. It's a whole five, five gallon bucket of it sitting over there. So why do I want to jump through your hoops if I can just walk over here and eat it? So what about a guy picking out his first whistle? You can see there, it seems like there's uh, different types of whistles, different noises, different sizes, things like that. What do you recommend when it when it comes to uh, to whistles? Well, they make they make whistles now with like a barrel on them to project the sound away from you and protect your hearing. Oh. So I would you know just the straight little whistle I think is really hard on your ears. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would pick a whistle What'd that's you say? reliable. What? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) I would would pick a whistle that's reliable and stick with that, with that whistle. Don't change, you know, midway in a hunt to a different whistle because the dog may not respond to it. It's got to be what they're used to hearing. Be consistent with it. You know, I'd seen those big ones. I didn't realize it was more for you than it was for the dog. Cause man, those whistles are loud. I mean, yeah. So in, 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 in lunging water or high wind situation, sound really punches out there if you sail the goose three four hundred yards across the stubble you might need that loud whistle to stop the dog and redirect it if it's off course speaking of that Corey, we're just a couple of weeks away from early goose uh i know uh, i'm chomping at the bit a little bit uh, i know some guys have been out in north dakota uh sounds like it's been kind of hit or miss over there a little bit some guys finding some success yeah. a little bit of success but more more scouting than hunting yeah. And that's, I mean, that's kind of that, that name of that game. I've had some good shoots over there. I've also s- spent a lot of money on fuel. Didn't make it over there this year. Um, but we're, we're here. I mean, it's for, for most people, there's another, about another week, a uh, month or so before the regular waterfowl season starts. You got dove season here on the first, there's going to be some hunting opportunities. Uh, but I think for the majority of people, we're into that last month before season really gets going, maybe month and a half before, you know, guys are really running around for pheasants. Uh, Tim, is there anything a guy, you know, what should a guy be doing right now other than just exercising his pup? Maybe he's got a, you know, a, a middle-aged dog that's got some experience under his belt. Um, what should they be doing out there right now to get his dog ready? Well, for a middle-aged dog, um, I like doing a lot of drills in the yard. You don't have to travel somewhere and train on a thousand acres. You can set up some bumpers in your backyard and work on some lining and casting drills. Um, but also, this is more for the newer dog, is when you're getting your hunting gear out, why not set it out and, and expose that dog to all the things that's going to be exposed to when it's hunting? So there's no excuse for a dog being afraid of a robo-duck on opening day. You should already have that thing spinning in the backyard and, and throwing some retrieves. should have the dog in and out of the boat, you know, the mud hut. However you're going to hunt, you should have trained on that. Uh, at home in your yard or whatever and a good time to do it is right now when you're getting all your gear out and going through it you have a preference on on types or sizes of bumpers that you work with yeah i really like white bumpers because a dog can clearly see the bumper when doing a drill Um, orange ones sometimes they'll run over the top of it and the dog has done the right thing but just misses it by a little bit and then can't find it um Unless I'm working on developing their nose, then I would throw an orange bumper into some cover and now have to sniff for it a little bit, but a little bit more. Explain that because I think the first time I lost an orange bumper and my dog couldn't find it, I, I was I was just flabbergasted that he that she was struggling to see an orange bumper. Yeah, so dogs see like shades of white and black uh, a lot better than we do, and they see movement better, and they see in lower light better than we do but they see less colors and orange is gray to them. And I've got a red, green color blindness. So orange isn't always the best for me. <laughs> I'm right there with the dog. I don't know where it is, man. I don't know. You got yeah, the you, nose. You're the, 
Yeah, you're, you're the guy that calls a buddy when he shoots a deer at the bow because I can't see the blood. Absolutely, my brother. Yeah, he's the there tracker. He's the tracker. Absolutely. Or maybe maybe Corey. Is there is there going to be a blood tracking program uh, coming out of DIY? Or Corey, are you going to start oh. one of those? Yeah, yeah let's I've, go. Yeah, yeah, I've dabbled in it a little bit. Oh, yeah. Uh, we spend yeah we spend six months out of the year in Texas. And using tracking dogs there is quite common. So I do have some exposure with that and have worked a little bit with that. Yep. I was surprised that it took Minnesota, and maybe I shouldn't be surprised it's Minnesota, but I was surprised yeah. it took Minnesota that long to come around to allowing dogs for that. Right. Well, reportedly, I've heard that people use them before that quite successfully. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. But I mean, if it helps you recover, recover an animal, I mean, it does, and, and you're, it's supposed to be on a leash too, right? You're supposed to keep the dog. Yeah. Uh, that's the way it's supposed to be. And I don't see, I don't see why you wouldn't be able to do that. But uh, yeah. But, and there's some, some great new technology for that too, with Garmin collars and you can see where the dog's at on the screen. And yeah, so Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Well, I don't want to ever see venison go to waste. So, that's um, right, Corey. We talked about whistles. We should mention bird whistles too before we go here. You got some. You had some some new red ones. Is that a new material? What? Yeah. What was I got that? One sitting right here. A new acrylic from a new supplier that is uh, very vibrant. Lots of purling going on. So there will be some pretty cool new offerings in. This line of calls, um, same line of calls, same, pretty much the same plastic, but just a new supplier that's um, offering some some pretty wild stuff. So uh, it's on its way here, and I'll get to working on it as soon as I can. So nice. I, I, yeah. I, I did want to. I know we didn't talk much about hunt tests. I did want to hit that too, real quick before we go. Um, I, I don't know who wants to take this. Maybe Andy. Maybe you can speak about sure. this uh, for somebody that has never really. Uh, been in the hunt test world what do they need to do to get prepared for it and what should they expect yeah what is it uh so a hunt test is essentially it's almost like a mock a hunt you would go on essentially um at a junior level you're gonna your dog's gonna be exposed to just single marks so meaning that one bird's gonna be shot at a time you need to release your dog from a collar the senior level you're gonna have a double so one bird's gonna get shot the second one's gonna get shot after that and uh, your dog has to remember where those birds are. So that's a mark. And then your dog also has to run a simple blind retrieve using hand signals, um, which would be outside the marks itself, as well as an honor where your dog is actually watching the other marks go down for, from another uh, dog's perspective, and your dog has to sit there and um, remain calm and watch the birds go down. And these and are actually the level, like live yeah. birds, right? That are getting shot, right? Yep. Yeah. Correct. Some of them. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You usually get one live flyer per test. Um, that's most common across all levels. And then the highest level um, in the AKC world is the master level where these are three series of triples and um, a double blind as well. So you'll dog will watch three birds go down, uh, pick up the birds, and then typically run two, two more complex blind retrieves. Uh, you're going to see that in multiple series typically as well as an honor. Um, so in terms of getting prepared for hunt test i always in, encourage people as an amateur to join a retriever club um i mean there's so many of them locally across the midwest i mean it, the hunt test game is very popular especially in minnesota um so there's more than likely there's going to be one around you so there's so much knowledge within the within the retriever clubs uh with the, between amateurs and pros it's a great place to network and get out and make friends and uh and get your dogs conditioned um i mean the best way to get your dogs ready for a, for the hunt, uh, this fall is to never get out of shape. I mean, just do something, a little bit of something every single day. It's amazing what kind of a great dog you can build by just doing something for five to 10 minutes a day. I mean, you don't need thousands of acres, like Tim said, to, to build a, a great retriever. I mean, it just takes time, patience, and a little bit of knowledge, uh, and networking from a pro or from other amateurs just to, just to build a great dog. I mean, it's really not as complicated as some people make it out to be. So was that Those your, are my recommendations there. Was it your goal to get that master title uh, this this early, or were you surprised that you were able to do it? Uh, I mean, you never know what you're going to get, I mean, right away. I mean, you pick up a seven-week-old puppy. I mean, you never know what, what's going to happen. Um, she kind of took – she kind of told me that as as she was progressing. I mean, I, I saw it really early on that she just was obsessed with retrieving and obsessed with working. Um, so she really was telling me that she wanted – wanted me to take her to that level uh, a little bit quicker than normal dog. 
Um, I mean, I, yeah, it's, I mean, it's all about reading the dog, I guess I'd say that perspective. Mm -hmm. So yeah, some dogs mature real fast and some are slower to mature and you go with what the dog gives you, but she's more of a fast maturing, serious driven dog. And Andy's a very serious, um, on the verge of obsessed when he gets into doing something and he does it quite well, whatever he does. That's awesome. I've seen in my experiences with the, with Tim's, the dynamic DIY program, I've seen just the, the efficiency of training can, you have to do it thoroughly, but the efficiency of the program really speeds a dog through learning all of these steps really fast. So I think that's, um, a lot of credit to my success and, and Andy's success as well is Tim's program and the way he's designed that and the way he's nitpicked all of the, just to, just putting all of the elements into the program that need to be in there and then getting rid of the garbage that actually doesn't really help you out and uh, might even take you backwards a little bit and just a little bit of a new spin on some of these drills and just making a lot of forward progress with the program all the time is and kind of like Tim said as fast as you want to take it with your dog in respect to how fast your dog wants to take it too so um no it's worked out very well for both of us and appreciate yeah, the, all the help the, yeah the biggest thing too is I mean with videos watching even like old videotapes and YouTube and that sort of thing you're always going to have questions um, I mean, your dog's going to do something that the video doesn't exactly, your dog's going to do something that the video didn't match up to being, and you're going to, you're going to need that resource to ask questions. Well, my dog did this. You can't ask the video that obviously. So having the communication, which is really fast through text message and, and phone calls is, is awesome with Tim. I mean, he's always available. I mean, it's, it's great communication style and it's very fluid, um, as far as, you know, being able to take your retriever, uh, to progress a lot faster, like Corey said. So, so Tim, how does, how does that work then? If somebody wants to be a part of that program, is it a, like a, a, a membership? Is it a monthly thing, yearly thing? Do, yep. you, do you work through every stage of life for the, for a dog or how does it work? Yeah. We generally start with the dogs that are around six months of age and covers the, you know, obedience, the electronic collar, which is known as conditioning, the dog understanding it, teaching the condition, hold and fetch commands, which are really important. And at the end of that, that'd be like a basic dog that could bring a bird back. If you want to go into the hand signals, if you have a waterfowl dog, then we continue on. We teach all that. Um, and through what's called early advanced training to where you're running blind retrieves. Once, once the dog is doing lots of longer distance retrieving, we do kind of hit a limitation, I think, with the videoing thing. But there is a lot of good information already out there, I feel, for all that stuff. So then people kind of graduate on after that point. Sometimes it's important with uh, those older dogs just to go back and give them a few reminders too mm -hmm. with some of that stuff, isn't it? Sure. Yep. Yes, sir. Um, all right, Corey, we're, let me see one of those puppies again, Corey. We, every time you show the puppies, our ratings go up. So sh you got one of those puppies there again? Can you get another one? And then while you're doing that, Tim, so I got a, can I get a puppy delivery? I got a puppy. <laughs> I got a puppy coming and I do have some yep. stuff here, but what, if somebody says to you, okay, I'm going to, I got a seven week puppy. What are the required materials that person should have? Oh, there we go. Oh, look at a cute puppy. Yeah, really. We, we get, oh, that's cute. We get, we get great young dogs where people will follow the training and retriever puppy with Bill Hillman DVD. And I, I make no money by saying that it's not, I'm not sponsored by them or anything. Uh, that's just really a good, solid balance program for, uh, for puppies. That's a great place to start. And then as far as uh, like bumpers, uh, collar, leash, uh, do you work platforms in, in the equation at all or, or anything else? Kennels, obviously. Well, we use a kennel command for the dog to go into a crate or into a kennel run or to jump in the dog trailer or to jump in into its crate in your vehicle to go training. We use a kennel command or to go in the mud hut. And otherwise we use a sit command, which means stay there until I tell you it's okay to leave. Um, but our, our training program does not focus on going to various places like on, on, uh, yeah, I've seen some of these platform deals and stuff. Right. When we cast the dog, it's going to get an object to retrieve. So you don't work like the, even the place command in with what you're doing then. 
So no, if we if we want him to go on something or go in something, we just we just say kennel. But really, I think the important thing is that you would have a a, a systematic, fair training program. You know, that's always more important than exactly what tools you use. You know what I mean? Sure. And having a, a bond and a, being able to communicate. You know, getting, yep. getting to know yep. that. Start dog with or... a good. Start with a good dog. Socialize it. Make sure it's healthy. And oh, yeah, do all the puppy. do all that important stuff, and then yeah, it usually usually turns out well. All right, Corey. Oh man, I can't wait. <laughs> can't wait. That of course we. I know the mom uh, of those pups, Corey. Who's the Who's the dad? Ah, uh, the dad is Snapper. He's a field trial champion and amateur field trial champion. Um, kind of a, a Minnesota dog, or spent some time in Minnesota and Georgia. But um, very awesome producer. So I was uh, very excited to uh, complete the breeding and and put a litter of puppies on the ground because have very high hopes for these. And Tim is very familiar with uh, Snapper and and his hmm. puppies offspring. Yeah, yeah. We trained a lot of Snapper offspring, and we've had a lot of success. And people have been really really happy with those dogs having being so driven yet so controllable and having that balance type dog, you know, that doesn't, isn't noisy. You know, that's one of the most annoying things. Waterfall hunting is a noisy dog and that's largely a genetic trait. I really love these balanced, sensible dogs that are not hard headed, that are middle of the road. And they just, they work for hunting, hunt tests or field trials. They just are talented and smart and easy to work with. Those are all spoken for now too, right? I've got a couple males left. Oh, you do? Ready to go. Yep, yep, you bet. All right. And the puppies are $2,500, and they come with a gunner kennel, intermediate size, and an e-collar, and a bunch of food, and two weeks of training with Tim's DIY training program. So the whole package, the best of the best, it was the best possible stuff I could put together with the best breeding and... uh, yeah, we're we're pretty proud of them. Well, here I was trying to figure out what all the essential items w- were needed, but you got you're giving them away with the puppies already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you Man, bet. That's cool. All right, so if people want to want to get one of those cute little uh, balls of fur right there, where do they find out more info, Corey? Oh, come uh, check out drccalls.com and all my contact info is on there. Or you can see pup dates pretty much them? every day on the Corey Loeffler Instagram page. Uh, we just post the heck out of these things. They're just so dang cute. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Tim, where do we find out more about uh, dynamic retrievers and the DIY? Well, yeah, we're pretty active on Facebook dynamic retrievers. We have a website too, dynamic retrievers.com and my cell phone numbers on there. And that's probably the best way to reach me. You can email me or message me on Facebook too. But uh, when you see my cell phone there, that's the fastest way to get me. All right, and, and Andy, you got anything you want to plug? <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's, uh, no, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just enjoy life with your dog and yeah. just get out and train as much as you can. And open the border. Um, no, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yep, open the border. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Very good. Well, congratulations on uh, the master title. Uh, Thank you. Good Appreciate luck this it. fall. And uh, Tim, good luck with everything you're doing there. Thanks for being on the show. And, and Corey, when am I getting that pup? Come on up. Pick her out. Uh, September 15th. She's ready for you. All right. And our cra- cranes are open uh, September 15th, aren't they? Uh, 19. Wait, four days. 19. September yeah. 19th. Well, yep. I might be sticking around for a few days, so make make up a room for me. and well, <laughs> I'm sure we'll find something, something to do. We got her. Got <laughs> you covered. Waiting. All right, guys. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Brad. Thank you. This has been the Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast, part of the Sporting Journal Radio family. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts or visit us at findingfurandfeathers.com. Devil's Lake is legendary, and this summer has been legendary for walleyes. Don't miss out. Call Haybell Heights Campground and Resort today to book one of their modern cabins on East Bay. The cabins are furnished with a full bathroom, kitchen, and all the amenities like high-speed internet and are clean following CDC guidelines. Staying at Haybell Heights gives you full access to a private boat launch, fish cleaning station, and beach area. Learn more at haybellheights.com. That's haybellheights.com. Plan your trip to legendary Devil's Lake today. As we all navigate through the tough times of 2020, 
Finding new ways to enjoy summer has become a way of life. If you're searching for the perfect getaway this summer, look no further than the walleye capital of the world, Lake of the Woods. Fish the Rainy River, Big Traverse Bay, and don't forget you can still experience the uniqueness of the Northwest Angle. For your best chance to catch big fish, go where the big fish are, Lake of the Woods. Plan your trip at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. If Trophy Lake Trout and Monster Northern Pike are on your list this summer, book a trip to Tazan Lake Lodge in northwestern Saskatchewan. Everything from numbers to big fish. See pictures, videos, and more at tazanlake.com. This is quite the fishery. Our five-star chef will feed you well after a day of chasing giants on Tazan Lake. Dream come true. Get rates, dates, and more of what you can expect at tazanlake.com. That's tazanlake.com. Tazan Lake Lodge is a proud partner of Tourism Saskatchewan. Hunt, fish, conserve, repeat. That's the mission here at Sporting Journal Radio, and if you love the outdoors as much as we do, show it off with new wildlife-themed gear from the Sporting Journal Radio store. From hoodies to hats, coffee mugs, wildlife prints, and you can even make your phone stand out with a new case sporting some high-quality wildlife photography. Go to sportingjournalradio.com and click on Store. We have a huge selection of gear with new items being added every week. Powered by Shopify, which is trusted by over 1 million businesses and offering a variety of ways to pay, including PayPal. Shop now at sportingjournalradio.com. 